great job, Jada. There's some <clears throat> tricky sentences in that passage, and you got through them perfectly. Well done. Thank you very much. Um, we have been following the Jesus Storybook Bible all through the year since September. We've been at this, and uh, we're currently in the part of the Jesus Storybook Bible where uh, it tells the story of Jesus' ascension. And for those of you who may not know what that means, the ascension means that after Jesus was raised from the dead, after his crucifixion, he spent 40 days on earth teaching his disciples, appearing to followers, etc. And at the end of that 40 days, he ascended bodily, physically into heaven. And the picture that we get is of Jesus uh, like levitating off the ground and going up into the clouds where his disciples could see him no more. And that that was uh, a way of Jesus uh, demonstrating that he was now reigning and ruling over the universe. Now, uh, Jesus didn't go up into the clouds and then end up in the stratosphere so that you don't see him anymore, but if you could get up there, like if you took a plane or a spacecraft or something, that you'd be able to find out where Jesus is hanging out. He went into a new dimension. He went into what's called heaven, the place where God dwells. And the Bible teaches that at some point at the end of time when history has been fulfilled, when God's plan for history has been completed, Jesus will return in the same way he went into heaven. He will return and he will bring heaven and earth together in what's called the new creation. And in that new creation, he will get rid of all evil, all wickedness, all sorrow, all pain, all suffering, and we will live with God forever in eternal bliss and joy. That's what the ascension is all about. Now, the disciples here have been told this by Jesus. They've been told that Jesus is going to leave them on their own. In verses 5 and 6 of the passage, it says, Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask, Where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. So what has happened is, is that Jesus has told his disciples, look, I am going to leave you, I am going to, to ascend into heaven and not be with you in the flesh anymore, in bodily form, and you guys are terrified at that, you are grieving over that, you are, you are freaked out over that. And it makes sense if you think about it, because remember, these guys have spent three years with Jesus so far. They have listened to his teaching. They've taught, heard him talk about this kingdom of God that he is going to usher, right? At the beginning of his ministry, he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Sorry, that's not, that was Paul. Jesus said, repent and believe the good news, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he described this kingdom to his disciples, and he told them what it was going to be like, and they had spent all this time with him, and he was the leader of their movement. He was the one who ushered in this whole kingdom of God project. And now he's saying that once I get it started, by the way, I'm leaving, and you're going to have to run it without me. At least that's for how they understand it. So of course they're kind of freaked out at the possibility that Jesus is leaving. There's another reason that they're a little freaked out at the possibility of Jesus leaving, and that's that... In John chapter 13 through 17, in this passage that we read as part of that long narrative, Jesus has been telling his disciples what life is going to be like in the future, what it means to be a follower of him. 
what it means to live in the world as someone who says Jesus is Lord. And he says, basically, listen, it's going to be remarkable. It's going to be amazing. You are going to have experiences that you never thought possible. You are going to know a peace and a courage and a strength and a, and a poise in the midst of suffering that you never thought possible. But you also got to understand that people are going to hate you. They're not going to like your Jesus. They're not going to like your Lord. They're not going to like your message. They're not going to like you. They're going to hate you. And in fact, they're going to persecute you. And some of them are even going to kill you. By the way, I'm leaving. So no wonder the disciples are a little bit freaked out at the possibility that, that Jesus is going to leave them because they're thinking to themselves, well, that's what we are facing going forward. How in the world are we going to be able to face that if you leave us? How can we carry on without you here, Jesus? And then Jesus says in verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is for your own good that I am going away. It is for your own Not only am I leaving, but it's good for you that I'm leaving. Well, why in the world would that be? Well, verse 7 continues, unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, when you heard Jada read it, uh, the word you heard there was advocate instead of counselor. And the reason that you're hearing two different words there is because when I was working on this sermon, I was using um, the version of the NIV that was translated in 1984. And so the word there was translated counselor. Jada read from the version of the NIV that was translated in 2011. It's an updated version, and they, tra they translated that word advocate. And I'll explain why there's two different translations as we get along, as we move along. But just so you know, that's why you hear this uh, discrepancy. My point right now is Jesus is telling his disciples, you're scared, you're overwhelmed, you're freaked out, but don't worry, I'm not actually leaving you alone. Even though I'm going, even though I'm physically going away, I am not leaving you alone. I'm going to leave you this person called the counselor. I'm going to send this person called the advocate, and that person is going to guide you into all truth. How very interesting. He's talking, of course, about the Holy Spirit. Who's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the second person of the Trinity. Christians believe that God is one God, who exists in three distinct persons, three and one. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are all God. They're not all part of God. They're all fully and completely God, but they're also all distinct persons in the Godhead. Does that explode your brain because you don't understand it? Mine too. It's okay. I hope it's okay with you to have a God to, uh, who is mysterious to you. I hope it's okay for you to worship someone you don't fully and completely understand. I mean, if you did, would he be God anyway? This is one of the things that we don't fully understand. And the point is that Jesus is going to send this second person of the Trinity to aid his disciples as this counselor. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at two things this morning from this passage. We're going to look at the power of the Holy Spirit, this power that he has, and then we're going to look at how he wields that power in our lives. The power that he has and how he wields that power in our lives. So let's begin. First of all, uh, Jesus says, 
it is for your good that I am going away. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wished, if you're a Christian that is, well maybe even if you're not a Christian, have you ever wished that uh, you lived during the first century in Palestine with Jesus? Have you ever thought to yourself, you know, I know my, my, my faith is weak. I believe in Jesus, but I don't know. Do I really believe in Jesus? I, I believe the Bible, but I don't know. Do I really believe the Bible? I've read these stories about Jesus and the incredible things he's done, but man, do I really believe those things? You know what I need? I need to be there. If I could have lived with Jesus, if I could have been like one of the disciples, I didn't even have to be the disciples. Like he didn't have to have me sort of as part of his inner circle, but, but I could have been sort of one of the people that hung around. Or maybe I just lived in Judea or lived in Galilee, these places where Jesus traveled and visited. And I got to meet him. I got to sit there when Jesus preached his Sermon on the Mount. I got to be there when he took like this little fish and these couple of loaves of bread and the next thing you know he feeds like a thousands and thousands of people. I could see the miracle. Or if I had been there when Jesus walked up to the tomb of Lazarus and he said, Lazarus, come out. And this dead guy came out of the grave. I mean, if I had been there to witness those kinds of things, man, that would really help my faith. I'd be a stronger believer, I think. I'd have more courage. I'd have more conviction. I'd have more whatever it is I'm missing. I admit, I've very often had that. I very often have kind of looked at the disciples and said, you guys are stupid. You're hanging out with Jesus. You're seeing him do all this kind of stuff, and you don't understand, and you don't get it, and you don't believe. If I had been there, maybe I would have been different. But listen, that's exactly the point. The disciples had been there. They had been with Jesus. They had spent three years with him, listening to his teaching, watching him perform all these incredible miracles. They did touch him. They did speak to him face to face. They did experience him and witness all these incredible things that he did. And here they are, still terrified, still scared. And yet Jesus says, I need to leave. Why? Why? How? Well, verse 12 and 13, listen to this. I have much more to say to you, he says, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Here's what Jesus is saying. It's remarkable. He's saying, look, despite all you've witnessed... Despite everything you've seen, there are things that you still don't understand. There are things that you cannot bear, he says. Big truths. You don't get the implications. You're, you've witnessed my miraculous works. You've witnessed me preaching this thing called the gospel of the kingdom. You're going to witness me dying on a cross. You're going to see me come out of the grave, resurrected, so that I'll never, ever die again. And you will not completely understand it. In other words, these things that I've told you over the last three years, all my teaching, all my ministry, etc., that is just the tip of the iceberg, guys. And I can't give it to you all now because you can't bear the weight of it. You can't understand the implications of it. But the Holy Spirit, He is going to come. He's going to impress these truths upon you. And when those truths are impressed upon you, watch out. 
the kind of people that you're going to be. And you know, the story actually bears this out because Jesus tells these disciples these things now. And after he leaves, he sends the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. That's 10 days after his ascension. He sends the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Mark is going to preach on this uh, next Sunday. We're going to learn about what in the world all that's about. But one thing we do know is that after Pentecost, after Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, these disciples are changed, radically changed. These guys have conviction. They have courage. They have bravery. They're, they're, they're afraid of nothing. They stand before the Sanhedrin who says to them, listen, you better stop preaching about Jesus or we're going to have you killed. And they look him in the eye and they say, we must serve God rather than man. Stephen stands before his accusers and he preaches this gospel and they're stoning him. They're throwing rocks at him to kill him in a pit and he won't stop talking about it. And if you read about the history of the first disciples, each and every one of them dies a martyr's death. John dies as an exile, but he's still a martyr. They are changed. Why? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit. See, what Jesus is saying is, when the Holy Spirit comes and he takes up residence in you and he lives within you, and this is, this is the mystery of the Christian faith. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, this person, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, so the God who made the universe, the only God that exists, who made the entire universe, who upholds the entire universe, if he were to one second take his, his favor away from the universe and, and take his, his sustaining hand away from the universe, everything would implode, everything would be gone, everything would be destroyed. This God, somehow, mysteriously, when you become a Christian, he actually enters into you. He takes up residence inside of you. It's mysterious because you say, well, where does he live? Does he live here, like in my heart? Does he live here in my gut? And you all know that he, he somehow takes up residence in your soul. And where do you point to when you point to your soul? Is it up here? Is it here? No, it's, it's, it's the spiritual part of you. And you partake, you participate, Peter says, in the divine nature. And so there is a power within us that is not of this world. It's supernatural power. It is omnipotent power. It is all-powerful power. And that's the Holy Spirit. He has this power. Now, okay, how does he wield this power, the Holy Spirit? How does, what does he do? Well, that's the second, the second point. Um, what's his job? Well, First of all, think about his name. Jesus, in this passage, he calls him the counselor, or as was read earlier, calls him the advocate. And the reason we get these two different translations is because the word, the actual word used here is really tricky to, uh, to translate. So some translations call him the helper. Other translations call him uh, the comforter. And the reason it's, it's complicated is because he's, he's, the, the word is this combination of two Greek words that are, are, are not always put together. So you have this, this kind of difficult word um, that, that, uh, that connotes truth. 
that carries the idea of truth. And then you have this, this other word that carries the idea of, of coming alongside of. So the word is parakleo or paraclete. You may have heard that word before. And it, and it, it combines para, come alongside, with, with kleo, which is truth. And when you put those things together, it creates this new kind of concept. And the idea is, is that this Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, He is the Spirit of truth, which is a hard concept. Truth is a hard concept, not in the sense that it's difficult to comprehend, although that is sometimes the case, but it's, it's a hard concept in the sense that it's, like it's, it's solid, it's there, it's reality, it's not something that is subjective and, and um, something that you kind of interpret as you want, as you see fit. No, 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 it's the thing that is absolutely true and it is there and it is unchangeable. And as the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, what he does is, is he applies that to us by coming alongside us. So in verse 13, it says, um, he will speak, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And that's why I like, I like this translation of counselor, because you see, the Holy Spirit, he's not just a teacher, he's not just communicating information to us, but he's also not just a sympathizer. It's not that he just sort of says to you, ah, you know, yeah, I know life is tough, life is hard, things are difficult, I get it. He combines these two characteristics together of truth and empathy. And that's what a good counselor does. A good counselor listens to you and comes alongside you and empathizes with you as you explain your situation to them and your circumstances. And you say, you know, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what is difficult for me. A good counselor listens to that. But if that's all a good counselor does, they don't help you get from where you are to where you need to be. A good counselor also provides truth, speaks truth into your life, gives you direction, tells you where you ought to go, and tells you where you ought to be. That's what a good counselor does. And the Holy Spirit is the ultimate counselor. He applies this truth to us. Think about this. There is a difference between knowing the truth and getting the truth. Um, when I was in high school, I had to take math like everybody else, and I was terrible at math. I'm still terrible at math. When I was in grade 10, I failed math three times. I took it the regular class, failed it. Then I had to take an independent study, failed it. Then I spent all summer going to a tutor, got to the exam, failed it again. It was not that I had a lack of information or a lack of resources or a lack of tools. I had a really cool scientific calculator that I probably didn't really know how to use. My problem was not that I didn't know stuff. The problem was that I didn't get stuff when it came to math. It, it, didn't, it didn't work in my head. It didn't work in me. So I knew about the truth of these, I don't even know what, algebra or something, X's and Y's and, you know, cosine, trig, blah, blah, blah. I didn't understand any of it. I knew this stuff. I'm using these words even now. I still don't know this stuff. I don't get it. I, I remember reading a book by a woman named Lauren Winner, who, uh, she's now a professor at Duke University. She's an Anglican priest. And she wrote this very fascinating book. When she was in university, she was not a believer. 
And like many people who get to university, she experienced new things when she got there. And one of the things she discovered and really enjoyed was sex. And uh, she became kind of promiscuous by her own admission. But partway through her university career, she became a Christian. And she put her trust in Jesus Christ. And she loved him. And she wanted to serve him. But she also still really liked sex. And she had a hard time giving that up. And so she would go to confession. And she would... Uh, confessed to uh, the priest and she would say you know I sinned I, I committed this sin I, I, I had sex etc and the priest would say you know that's wrong you know that's a sin you need to repent of it and she would say yeah I know that and then she would go off and she would end up in a relationship and start having sex and a few months later she'd come back to the prof professor to the the priest and she would uh, confess her sins again and she would talk about sex and the pastor would say the priest would say you know that's wrong right you know that's a sin she yeah yeah I know that and then she'd go back and she the cycle would just continue over and over and over again until one time after a while this this had been happening and she went to the priest and she confessed that she had been having sex and the, the priest said the same thing that he always says you know this time um, he said uh, you know that's wrong, you know that's a sin, right? And, and she said, all of a sudden that truth just like went right through my heart. And I was like, I can't believe, like, this is a sin. Doing this constantly and consistently, this is a sin. This breaks God's heart. I am grieving the Holy Spirit. This, Jesus came to die for that and to take it away. And here I am doing this and, and participating in this. I can't do that. What happened? What changed? The Holy Spirit got a hold of her. The Holy Spirit impressed a truth upon her. He, he applied this truth to her. He, he imprinted it on her. Jesus, you see, what he's telling us here, friends, is that our problems largely are not that we need new circumstances or we need new information. We need a new spiritual reality. We need a new spiritual reality. Jesus is telling disciples, I'm telling you all this now while we're here in the upper room and we're having this discourse and I'm telling you all this stuff. I'm telling you all this stuff now, but, but the only way you're really going to know it is when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you and he applies it to you. He pushes these truths down into your soul, kind of like a king, when a king says, you know what, uh, I'm sending a letter to my people, and uh, he pours wax on the letter, and then he takes his ring, and he pushes his ring into the soft wax, and the wax takes the shape of the ring, so that when everybody sees the letter, they know that this is absolutely true, that it is coming from the king, this is what the Holy Spirit does, he takes these truths, you see, and he impresses them upon us, and what's the truths he takes, well, verses 14 and 15, he will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and will make it known to you. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to glorify me by taking my glory and impressing it upon the hearts of my people. The glory of my death, of my resurrection, of my ascension, of my reign, all the truths of who I am, he's going to, to pour that into you. I, I didn't even notice it during the 9 a.m. service. I, I, I'm, I'm disappointed in myself, but, but I noticed it in the 11 a.m., so even I can learn things as we go along. 
we talked about the assurance during the time of assurance. We read from Romans 5. What does Romans 5 say? It says this. It's incredible. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You hear that? The Holy Spirit whom God has given us, somehow through the work of the Holy Spirit, God the Father and God the Son, they are pouring the love of God into us pushing it into us, driving it into us, impressing it upon us so that these truths, that Jesus died for us, that Jesus rose for us, that he ascended for us, that even right now in the midst of COVID and in the midst of your own anxiety and in the midst of your own fears and in the midst of a world of complete chaos and unrest, in the midst of all of that, Jesus is reigning and ruling over absolutely everything so that you can have confidence, so that truth shapes your life, shapes your outlook, shapes how you you face each and every day. That's what we need. Because listen, we don't live our lives that way most of the time, do we? Jonathan Edwards, probably better than anyone, has kind of laid this out for us. He said, now he was talking the 17th century sorry, 18th century, um, so the times were a little bit different, but, but he said this, he said, you know, everybody believes in a creator to whom they, they owe something. And there's some truth to that. Most people today believe in some kind of creator and they owe that creator something. They may not e- e- exactly be sure what it is, but, but they, they owe him something. But the question is, is do people really honor God. Even you and I, as Christians, we know the actual creator. We know who he is. We know his name. We know what we owe because we've got the Bible. We've got all this, this, these truths laid out for us. But do we live as though we owe him everything? Do we really honor him? He says, look, look, you talk to people, what do you see? You see, they get mad at God when he doesn't give them whatever it is they're asking when they pray to him. Or they only go to him when they're experiencing difficult things and they need something from him. Why is that? He says it's because they don't have a sense of the glory of God on their heart. God's glorious concept to them in their minds, but it's not something that has sunk down into their hearts that they experience. Or he says, how about this? Okay, you're a Christian. Are you a Christian? And you say, yes, I'm a Christian. Sure, I'm a Christian. You believe Jesus died for your sins? Yes, I believe Jesus died for my sins. Do you believe that Jesus is going to reign over, reigns over the universe and he's going to come back and he's going to bring you into his family and you're going to experience joy evermore, everlasting, and everything you've ever missed out on this life will mean nothing in comparison to the incredible glories that await you? And you say, yes, 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 yes. Well, then why, why are you always feeling insulted or snubbed? Why are you worried about going unnoticed or ignored by people? Why, why are you devastated by criticism? Someone comes along and points out that there's something that could be changed or could be addressed and you find yourself getting defensive about it and find yourself getting frustrated by it. And he says, it's because the love of God is not real to you. It's real to you, but it hasn't sunk into you to the point where it actually controls you. I, I heard a story, and, and, and i got to be careful because I'm not saying that this is the sole reason or the only reason for, for this, but it was a substantial reason in this situation. I heard a story of a pastor who was, was meeting with a teenage girl who had um, an eating disorder. 
and they were talking, he was trying to pastorally care for her, and he was sharing the gospel with her and explaining it to her and saying that God loves you more than you could ever love yourself and more than anybody could ever love you, etc. And she actually stopped him and she said, listen, pastor, I know Jesus loves me and I know Jesus died for me. And I know that he loves me more than anybody else could ever love me. And I know that one day he's going to come back and he's going to take me into eternity and I'm going to be with him forever. And I know all that. But, she said, what does any of that, what good is any of that when I can't get any boy to look at me and take me out on a date? And what this pastor discovered and what this girl was admitting quite openly and honestly was that the spiritual reality of those truths had not sunk into her. See, the work of the Holy Spirit is to take the wonder and majesty and, and, and glory of God and beauty of Jesus Christ and, and work it into us as you contemplate his death for you, as you contemplate his resurrection for you, his ascension for you, his, his glorious victory over the devil for you and sin for you and, and the grave for you, as you contemplate these things, they, they change you as you remember these things. Not like remember these things as kind of, oh, like my grocery list. Oh, I, don't forget, remember, buy oranges. No, but as you actually meditate on them, and sink those things into. When we sing songs that say, ah, I had it in my head. I was really trying to remember what we say. <laughs> I'm a bad illustration of what I'm trying to encourage you. You don't just sing these songs, but you meditate on these songs. What was the song we sang before we sat down? Mark, what was that song? Yeah, so grave what? What did I say? The grave has no claim on me. Jesus, yours is the victory. You don't just sing that in the moment and think to yourself, yeah, that's awesome. But you go home contemplating that, sinking that into you. As you read the Bible and you read the life of Jesus and you see his incredible love for the adulterous woman and his patience with her and you see his incredible firmness and strength in the face of, of persecution and, and challenge by the Pharisees, when you see him show his majesty and glory, when he calms a storm and you face the storms of your life and you say, my Jesus is Lord of every and any storm, when you, when you press those things into your heart, that's what changes you and shapes you and, and, and enables you to overcome the sinful tendencies that have perhaps and battered and befuddled you for perhaps even decades. The Holy Spirit does that in you. He's the one who does that in you. Now, let me just close very quickly with, okay, why, why is it the Holy Spirit who does that in me? Why couldn't Jesus have done that? Why can't Jesus do that? And the answer is twofold. One is accessibility. If Jesus didn't ascend and send the Holy Spirit, if he just decided to hang out on the earth himself in his bodily form, yes, you have the same counselor that you would have if the Holy Spirit was your counselor, the same advocate you would have if the Holy Spirit was your advocate, but he'd be here in bodily form and you'd want to talk to him and you'd want to connect and you'd want to hang out and you'd have to get in line. Because Jesus 
he voluntarily limited himself when he took bodily form so that he's like you and me. And so when you want to call him up and you want to have an appointment with him, you, you think it's bad getting a counselor or a therapist right now in, 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 in our culture. Imagine if Jesus, the ultimate counselor and therapist, was the one you wanted to meet with, and there are billions of others who want to meet with him too. You couldn't get access with him. You'd have to take a number. Because Jesus purposely localized himself. But what he did locally for the disciples, he does globally for us through the Holy Spirit. You have immediate access because the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. He is there. And you can go to him anytime. And every time you open the Bible, every time you study the word and you say, Lord, show me wonderful things in your word, the Holy Spirit is there illuminating you. We call it the illumination of the Holy Spirit. He opens your spiritual eyes to see and understand the truths of Scripture. Every time you come to worship and you listen to a sermon, you listen to the, 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 the word proclaimed, or you sing the music that we sing, and you're actually singing these incredible biblical truths, every time you do that, the Holy Spirit, He is there applying these truths to your heart. Okay? You have... Every time you pray, every time you pray, the Holy Spirit, he engages with you in prayer to the point where Paul even says in Romans 8, when you don't know what to pray for, you're not sure how to get it out, you're like, you ever have that? You're just like so emotionally overcome and all you can do is go, God, and the Holy Spirit, he intervenes, the scriptures say, with groans that you can't even understand to to the Father on your behalf. Think of the access you have, universal and 24-7 available. Second of all, the intimacy. Now, you think that you would have great intimacy with Jesus if he was here in the flesh, right? You'd put him on your WhatsApp group. You'd hang out at Starbucks with him occasionally, right? You'd send him funny memes every once in a while. Maybe he'd be in your accountability group or your life group. And, of course, the accountability always seems to go one way. You're the one confessing all the time. But that's okay. It would be great to have that kind of intimacy with him. But you don't realize, friends, that that intimacy is nothing compared to the intimacy you have with the Holy Spirit. There are metaphors about our relationship with Jesus. Things like, he is the light of the world, and he is our shepherd, and he is our brother, and... uh, He is our friend. These are all great descriptions of Jesus, but think about this. You even have, he is our husband. How intimate is that? But think about this. The Holy Spirit is not just a friend outside of us, not just a husband outside of us, who we may even have intimacy with, spiritually speaking, in kind of uh, intermittent ways, as Sex is a metaphor for that. But the Holy Spirit, he is like the vine and the branches. You know, you know how Jesus says, I am the vine and, the, and you are the branches? And the way that you get, the way you are alive is by being connected to the vine. That's what union with Christ is. It's being connected to Jesus. Well, how do you think that happens? It happens by the Holy Spirit. He takes up residence in you. He is the vine. You are literally connected to the divine one. You have the divine life inside of you, never to be separated. He's in you. So that the power of God, like the power of a vine, courses into and, and 
and gives life to the branches in the same way the Holy Spirit, His divine life, courses into us and empowers us with life. It is, it is astounding. If you think about it, it's mysterious, I admit that. I, I'm, I spent all week trying to figure out how do I describe something that I don't quite understand to you. <laughs> but the intimacy is far greater, honestly, than the intimacy you would have had with Jesus. If Jesus were here right now, whose church would he be going to? There's all these churches having services right now. Where does he go? Probably Grace Valley. I mean, I know. He'd probably come to our, our, our early service, though. <laughs> okay. Where do we go with this? Look. None of us understands quite how much power resides within us. It's not our power. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And what I'm calling us to do is to simply reflect and think about when we look at the sins that are dominating our lives sometimes, when we look at the troubles that we are facing sometimes and they seem so overwhelming, when we look at a world, when we look out the windows and the doors of our homes and we see a world that's in chaos because of COVID or in chaos because of world uh, uh, geopolitical problems, etc., and, and we think that these things are overwhelming us and overwhelming the world, don't forget, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit of God to reside in your heart, to impress upon you these timeless truths that can catalyze you to live as the one who said, do not be afraid and take heart, for I have overcome the world. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the work that he does in us. Uh, we know so little of it, and we ask for so much more of it. We are sorry, Father, that we... we, we sometimes live as though we're not... We're not united to our Savior by the Holy Spirit. And we look at our troubles and our struggles and they seem so overwhelming to us. Father, give us the new perspective as you impress the work of Christ in our hearts more and more so that we live with courage, that we live with, with boldness, that we live with confidence to face every day and certainly face every, every problem, every... Uh, crisis that we, that we may encounter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.